This is a podcast of the talk, how to talk to people you don't agree with. And this is episode one. My name is Georgia Twig and I'm a mental health occupational therapist. Through my work, I've come across a lot of really useful information, strategies and ideas for how to make conversations and dialogues between people work better. Over the next four episodes, I'm going to share these ideas with you and hopefully some of it is going to be useful. Right now, you're going to hear some recordings of me giving this talk at the Jerwood Space in April of this year, supported by the artist and activist group Keep It Complex. Episode one is going to give you some theory and science behind why it is just so damn hard to have conversations with people with a completely different worldview to yourself. We're going to have a look at what happens for all of us when somebody asks us to change. It's not easy work, but it is worthwhile. So I hope you're up for it. I'm with you all the way. Here we go. Okay. All right. So the main uh, sort of bits of theory that I thought were useful. So there's some stuff around neuroplasticity. Stuart can maybe correct me on that as we go. Um, And something called motivational interviewing and also a theory of habituation. So why we make habits. And these are all relative, uh, relevant because What I felt was happening based on my interactions with people in a mental health setting and then also looking at my interactions with with people day to day is um, people don't want to change who they are. People don't like doing that. And there has to be a reason for this. And so I'm looking at some of that, that theory and experience about how... So my job is basically to help people change. That's what I do. Uh, people have to be ready for change, and then sometimes my job is to try and make people change when they're not ready for change, and so I've spent a lot of time exploring that. So I was thinking about what happens when two people with different opinions come together. Why is that so inflammatory when you're asking for someone to consider the potential of change? So the way that we are, the way that we develop our sense of self uh, begins in the social environment into which we're born. And our brains develop through who we meet and what we do and see. And emotion is a huge part of that. And our brains start to grow from that. And a person who has positive emotional input will grow. And a person who has negative emotional input will grow. And a person who has no emotional input whatsoever will not grow. It's called failure to thrive syndrome. And a child just will not develop. So whatever's being put in is growing the brain that we have. And so all of those things around you, the structures and systems you grow up in, they are the catalyst for your initial brain architecture that you start off with. And the brain, in terms of a a very boiled down version of neuroplasticity is, your brain will choose to borrow existing pathways to learn new things rather than always create new pathways. So for a baby, it's exhausting. A baby needs to sleep all the time. It takes ages. It takes years and years to learn to talk. So a huge amount of work is being done there. So those existing pathways will be reinforced again and again. Habituation is how we have to, we have to create habits. 
So it's the same thing as what I'm talking about there. The brain borrows pathways because we must have habits in order to get on with our daily lives. If you think about when you try and learn something new, a new skill, it takes a good long while. You feel tired, especially thinking about learning a language, learning a new language in a new country. Your brain's creating new pathways, and that is very tiring, big work. The same thing is happening when we ask somebody to change their perspective or to change their emotional response to a stimulus. So that feeling of having a habit and feeling like, oh, it's really hard. I don't want to go to the gym more. I don't want to act differently in this space. I want to maintain my habits is because we must have habits in order to not be exhausted every day by the experience of existing. And that, if you think about that feeling, that kind of awkward, jarring sensation, and then translate that to emotional experience, for me personally, I feel like that starts to give me some insight into why people can resist change so much. When some people, more than others, are inclined to embark on change personally, uh, for whatever reason, and usually it's maybe the social environment they've been brought up in, and then some elements of personality which you can't really control for. It is just there. But what I've what I found and what the studies show is that if you want someone to engage with you, you need to be able to express compassion towards them and empathy. So with this information about the brain and our very core sense of self being in this brain architecture that is so reinforced over decades and decades of living, I personally, and I hope that it's made sense how I've explained it, can sort of have some sort of empathy for the discomfort that someone might be experiencing when we go in saying, your worldview is this, but I don't agree and I need you to agree with me. So basically what, what I'm trying to say is that when you ask someone to change, that you're asking them to change something which is so deep-rooted it's at the very core of their identity potentially. You're asking them to, do, to unsettle something that's very, very deeply lodged biologically and psychologically in their very sense of self. So I'm just going to do uh, a short interactive exercise in which I'm going to ask everyone to make themselves a little bit uncomfortable in order to reconnect with that feeling of discomfort. Um, I'm not going to ask anyone to share anything they don't want to share, but there will be time for that afterwards. And um, the idea of it is that it puts us in a better space to have a recent memory to access when we're trying to feel empathy, when we're trying to imagine the, the shoes of the other, being in the shoes of the other person. Is everybody okay for that? If, if you don't want to, you can opt out and maybe just have a moment to reflect on why you've chosen to opt out. Okay. All right, so if you'd like to close your eyes, you're very welcome to. I'd invite you to do that. And just take a quiet moment to... It's, this is it's between a meditation and a reflection. It's not spiritual. It's... it's um, a reflection on, on yourself. 
So just take a moment to try and let go of some of the day so that you can connect with yourself that's, that's not so temporal, that's more constant. So the quiet moment. I'd like you to look at deeply held, some deeply held belief or preference or it could be an aversion that you have to something that you know is not quite right. So, for example, if you're a white person in the West, you will have grown up with uh, white privilege as a structure, and that will have informed some of your experiences. So maybe go to that, or you might go to something, something that is a change that I, your ideal self would make this change. Your best self would change this thing about you to then become a better self, but you're struggling with it. Or it could be as simple as being a bit kinder. It could be something about how you cope with a friend who's quite difficult, but you know that you would like to be somebody who could facilitate that person better, or you could be more generous. So just go to that thing where you think you know you could be doing better, so to speak, but you're a bit stuck and you're struggling with that change. And have a think about what it is that makes you feel like this thing needs to change. It could even be something as simple as changing your dietary habits or changing how you spend your money. Okay, so think about who you'll be and what would happen if you don't change this thing. And reflect on what would be different for you if you do manage to make change for yourself in this area. And then just spend a bit of time thinking about how you feel in your body thinking about making this change that you're maybe not quite ready to change yet. Think about sensations in your chest, your stomach, your throat or head. So just take a moment now to just come back to the room and have a little think about that. Did anybody experience any discomfort contemplating the idea of changing something? Yeah. I think if it's true change that you're looking at, you will feel uncomfortable. Because your body will, your actual physical body will somatically resist those efforts. Uh, just because it does, and it's good to know that. I think it's really good to see that this is what we're facing, and this is why people don't like it, because your body reacts and tells you no. The way that I've approached this as these strategies is you... But in therapy, so in therapies and in mental health, it's called therapeutic use of self. So you make the decision 
to um, obviously I have to if I work with somebody it's my professional role but this is something that you could take on to an extent you've made a choice if you do make a choice to enter a conversation knowing that there will be a disagreement and you make the choice to say well I am going to do my best to hold this conversation to make I'm going to do work at my end to hold this yeah yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. It can do. And then you can kind of try, you could, if in the, we'll talk a bit about preparing for a conversation in the moment of the conversation and after the conversation. But um, yeah, this, the sense here is that you're choosing to do a piece of emotional work and be that person in that moment. Not saying that everyone should always be doing that by any stretch of the imagination. I certainly don't do it all the time. Um, but there are moments when it's necessary and you get a lot further for doing it. And then there are times when you just want to be and walk out of there and you choose those moments for yourself. If we're happy to go on to it, um, I'd like to talk a bit about, it's a lot of my voice, um, blocks to open dialogue. That be useful, yeah. And it's not always what you think it's going to be. A key theory that I mentioned briefly earlier is motivational interviewing, and this was developed out of work with people with addiction problems. And what they found was that telling people with addiction and substance misuse problems to stop smoking or drinking because it's bad for them had almost zero effect. So what? They, uh, what has been found, I can't remember the names of the psychologists, but it's very Googleable, um, is that to create, to, to enable a conversation where there will be a back and forth between two people and there will be a possibility of change required certain strategies. And so when I'm talking about open dialogue, I'm talking about a space for actual dialogue, not debate and not argument and not two sides presenting a case and walking away, but an exchange of information. And so what they found, actually, motivational interviewing, I'll, I'll quickly go over this and then we'll go to the blocks. Um, so a person is four times more likely to believe something that they have said than they are to believe something that they have been told. And they call that change talk. So what you would do is you would have a specific way of asking questions and facilitating a conversation. So not leading it and not guiding it or directing it, but just facilitating this conversation to happen um, that is much more effective. And it enables people to start saying their own solutions and talking themselves through their own process. And it's some of that that I want to talk about using here and getting those stressed, because it's, well, it's a lot less stressful as well. It's a much less stressful way of having these conversations. So, some of the things that will shut down dialogue and stop people talking to you are giving advice. Yeah, so making suggestions and giving advice and solutions. Uh, the second biggest one is using logic to argue your case. That will turn people right off from talking to you. <laughs> Moralizing and preaching to people will tell, make them tell you to go away. Directly disagreeing and criticizing or blaming. 
There might be times that you want to do that. You might decide that this conversation is over and I, all I want you to know is that I am not with you. But that's a different kind of conversation to what we're talking about. I don't think anyone needs advice in that. Um, so shaming, trying to shame somebody. Like, think about what you've done. Think about how they will feel. Think about, like, in mental health, you hear it quite a lot when people are exasperated and, and maybe staff have run out of techniques and say, like, what will your mother think? What will your children and family think? And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It just makes that person feel terrible. And when someone feels terrible, they lash out and they walk away. So interpreting or analyzing somebody. So being a, little, being a psychoanalyst in the moment, and I can tell you this as somebody who works therapeutically and in psychological interventions, if, if you express that, uh, explicitly, that person will not want to talk to you anymore. So, yeah, don't. Um, reassuring and consoling somebody to say they're there. This is all. If, if you, there's there's affirming people, but then there's consoling, which can feel really patronising and like you're trying to take on a role of carer that you aren't necessarily entitled to take on, and it's it, it turns it it makes it hierarchical. So you're saying, I will comfort you and that person can feel, it, can, it's, it changes the dynamic and it's, it's, not all, it's not generally positive. So excessive probing. This is something I have to do sometimes in my job. And generally, I would do it at the very end and like it would be a sort of almost sacrificial to the relationship. I have to know about these things, but I know that this, this relationship... I'll have to work to rebuild my relationship after that. And the final thing is to withdraw or divert from the topic, and it just makes somebody shut down. They might not explicitly shut down, but they will implicitly sort of stop talking to you and engaging with you. They'll, they'll feel like they can't trust you. If you talk about yourself, it depends how you do it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's like... Um, yeah, if you're going to be therapeutic, there's effective disclo like personal disclosure, but just That's not... Okay. It can be, just don't go too far into it. Don't be like, and then my mother, and then, <laughs> and then my thingamabob, and you're just like me. Yeah, people don't really like, it doesn't help. Um, yeah, I mean, this is quite, this is quite, it's definitely a practice. It's like a working thing. You can like get better at it. You can try it out. You can see what works for you and who you are in different relationships to different people and just keep using it to make your conversation more effective. All right, that was episode one. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found it useful. Like I said at the beginning, there are three more episodes to go. Episode two is going to look at what keeps a conversation open and what shuts a conversation down. Episode three is going to give you strategies for before, during and after your difficult conversations to keep you safe and feeling okay. And episode four is going to give example of some contexts. So talking to your family or talking to a stranger about politics and to give you some ideas of how this works in practice. With thanks to Jerwood Space for hosting our talk and to Keep It Complex for making this podcast happen. See you at the next episode. Ta-ra!